Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Just a reminder that I have a book out called Lump, published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. Lump is my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you don't believe me, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Randy Boyagoda. Randy is the author of six books, including the novels Governor of the Northern Province, Beggar's Feast, and Original Prin, as well as a scholarly biography of Richard John Newhouse. His work has been nominated for the Giller Prize and the Impact Dublin Literary Prize. He frequently writes for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Walrus, Financial Times, and The Guardian, as well as many other places. He's the former president of Penn Canada, and is currently a member of the Walrus Educational Review Committee and a professor at the University of Toronto, where he's also a vice dean in the Faculty of Arts and Science. Randy's most recent novel, Dante's Indiana, was published by Biblioasis in 2021. In its review of that book, the Wall Street Journal said that it juxtaposes the ridiculous and the sublime, fitting as both an homage to Dante and a portrayal of America. Randy and I talk about why he consciously shifted his fiction away from sprawling, multi-generational novels of immigration toward more pointed social satire, and why he has no real plans yet to complete the trilogy that began with Original Print and Dante's Indiana. We also talk about the cultural and social significance of Pickleball. You are an author and a novelist and an academic and a scholar. I will say that the word intellectual is the second word in your Wikipedia biography, which is <laughs> that's that's a life goal that uh, I will never attain, but I'm very jealous. Given all that, I have a question for you mm-hmm. that I can only ask a renowned scholar and intellectual, which is, can you please explain pickleball to me? I would love to, and I will do so in personal terms, public terms, and creative literary terms. Please. Pickleball is the outcome of people with bad knees and good hand-to-eye coordination trying to find a way to keep up their uh, leisurely athletic lives when tennis or squash becomes a little too much. And so pickleball is, simply put, a recreational racket sport that by any given evangelizer's uh, account is the fastest growing sport in America with professional leagues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's basically, Nathan, a a racket, a court sport where you play tennis using wiffle balls mm-hmm. on a smaller court. So again, like imagine tennis and imagine tennis and ping pong had a baby. Right. That baby was watched over by thousands of aging athletes. And that's what pickleball is. Now, there's a further point, which is that my father, who's in his early 80s, uh, moved into a condo down the street from our house in the east end of Toronto. 
And part of why he moved into this condo as he's getting older is that there is a YMCA in the base of the building, which offers pickleball programming. And so, as you can imagine, it's a pretty straightforward way for someone uh, like my father, who's been a lifelong racket sport player and has been playing pickleball for 20 years, to stay active while older. Uh, and I will go over and play with him. And the awfulness, Nathan, is that at Christmas this past year, I started to enjoy it myself. <laughs> oh no, it crept then in. I bought, then I bought a, a carbon graphite racket. And then I joined a men's league on Friday nights, which was too uh -huh. much. That was when I yep. realized something was going wrong. Yep. But as I, I know you know, um, my 2018 novel, Original Print, has in it, I think, the world, the literary world's only account of a pickleball match. And I wrote that mostly from imagination, but now I'm living it out because I play with my dad a couple of times a week. Do you ever look back at that account in original print and think like, I, where did you get some of it wrong? Or do you think you nailed it even before you were a player? So I... <laughs> I sent, um, I sent, it was exerted in, um, I think maybe Commonweal magazine a few years ago, right around the time of publication. And I sent it to a couple of people that I played pickleball with when they found out that I was a writer. And they, the, the response immediately was, yeah, you, you got that one about right in terms of the father son dynamics. Got it. So yeah, I'd say, I'd say uh, I'm living out an affirmation of what I imagined. And is there a further, um, connection there in the sense of you know i i spoke to um the writer hiromi goto on an earlier episode of this podcast about how she works part-time on a farm now like mm -hmm. and she really enjoys we talked all about how she really kind of enjoys you know the physicalness of the physicality the kind of yes. being able to like let your head rest <laughs> mm -hmm. is there part of that too that you need this outlet that is pure purely physical yeah, and, and it's not that it's purely physical, but it's uh, it's purely physical with, to my mind at least, the right levels of social interaction and uh, and physical demand, which is to say, I'm not best friends with anyone I play pickleball with. Mm -hmm. That's great, you know? Yeah. Uh, there was a, there's a New Yorker article, maybe about two years ago now, and it was entitled, Can Pickleball Save America? And it was this account of the pickleball phenomenon across the United States. And one of the really interesting observations about it was that there's a certain uh, ethos to pickleball. Because the court is smaller than tennis, you can't help but constantly be chatting with the, with your opponents. Think about it. You can see the analogy yeah. in an American context, right? And uh, as competitive as it gets, the goal is always to have a good game rather than to beat the other person generally speaking at least at the recreational level and i just like the fact that i am uh i'm chatting with people that i'm not related to or professionally connected to and didn't go to high school with in other words a layer of connection that you know in our increasingly i think anatomized world is hard to find and sustain you know mm -hmm. um someone needs to read to write a successor to uh what was it a uh, bowling alone right robert what's his name is robert putnam's oh, book bowling alone yeah yeah right? about, again about the hollowing out of kind of affiliative belonging in american life you know 
not just the individual in the state, the individual in the corporation. Gone are things like um, community service clubs, church belonging, sporting groups, right? That kind of stuff is gone. But for me, at least something like pickleball uh, reinscribes that in my life. And the fact that I said pickleball reinscribes something in my life is why Wikipedia calls me an intellectual. <laughs> But and it's 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 structured in a way and it's it's a structured event. It's a structured sport so that you can step into it, have that have that structure of of social connection, but then step out of it yeah, without, yeah, without feeling exactly. like you're snubbing anyone, you're bailing on anyone. You don't have to, like, find an awkward way to exit. It's like the game's over. Tournament's over. See you next week. Yeah. Now, the funny thing. Yes. The funny thing about it is you can still see I experienced it to some degree. Um, but you can still see the anxiety, right? You show up, you don't know anyone. Where are you going to put the paddle? There's, you know, there's certain ways that you're supposed to interact. There's certain kind of unspoken decorum about not moving someone's paddle in the box mm. that you use, right? Now you juxtapose that with the following. And my dad first started doing this. He showed up and there's this kind of, it's like a ladder model, if you know what this means, right? The winners stay on one side, the losers move to the other and it becomes sure. more competitive, yeah. et cetera. And he showed up Um and realized that the, the play wasn't organized properly. So he came to our house, he emptied out whatever was in two of my wife's Ikea bins and brought them back to the pickleball uh, courts and wrote in a permanent marker, winners and losers on the two <laughs> boxes. And then was amazed that no one wanted to use his system for some reason. Right? <laughs> so yeah, there, there, there are these, there, it's not without its difficulties that way. But really, though, it is a very enjoyable thing. And the last thing I'll say is my plug for pickleball is that compared to any other racket sport, it has the shortest distance between learning how to play and enjoying play, if that makes sense. Okay. Right. So I, I would say that for all of those reasons, for all of your listeners, pickleball is something to consider reading about, original print, and then trying yourself. <laughs> I like how you plugged the book. In you like the, that, eh? Good. Yeah, well done. Thank you. Um, although I will say, you know, as someone who has to take his youngest kid to badminton uh, once a week, mm -hmm. I feel like if if pickleball is too intense for you, there's always badminton as the next <laughs> step away from the intensity of of uh, of tennis or squash, I guess. Mm -hmm. I do have some serious uh intent behind this question which is just a kind of lifestyle question in terms of every interview that i've read with uh, with you you've tended to shrug off the whole question of like how does one do this how does how do one, you do it how do you do how that? do you do it do you wake up at three in the morning and write to i i feel like i sense that you're going to shrug it off with me but i do wonder are there times in your week, in your month, in your mm -hmm. semester, where you really do feel like one is crowding out the other, that yeah. your creative life is being crowded out by your academic life or vice versa, that you're really mm -hmm. feeling like I want to disappear into novel writing and I can't because I need to worry yeah. about faculty this or sure, sure. semester that. So I would say the answer to that is yes. And it goes both ways. Um, in other words, it, the 
the bravado version of things, Nathan, is, you know, this is just my side gig being a vice provost at the University of Toronto. Sure. Right. This just pays the bills while I write critically acclaimed fiction for indie presses that no one reads. Right. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. It's supposed to, yeah, yeah. to swagger a little bit or something. But the reality is that um, at various points in my life, I have configured and reconfigured my ongoing creative interests to the demands before me, you know, from graduate school onward. And certainly, and you'll remember a version of this, I'm sure with small children, it used to be something like get up super early in the morning and write before anyone else wakes up. I don't have to do that anymore. And I also think in my late forties, I probably couldn't kind of consistently do that. Right. Um, one thing I've always noticed, however, is that Every time I start a new administrative job at the university, which happens, you know, every few years or so, mm -hmm. the first six to eight months afterwards are a, in literary fiction terms, a total desert for me because um, inside my head, most of the time when I'm in, in university meetings is whatever novel I'm working on. I'm just working it out in my head, mm -hmm. right? But the fact of the matter is when I start a new job, my creative life gets rerouted to making sense of the interpersonal dynamics, the ideas, the problems of this new thing I'm doing. And I've just noticed that. And, and part of the maturing, I think, when you try to balance, as I think we all try to, day jobs with creative lives, is to accept that instead of to be embittered by it, right? Or to overcompensate with, no, no, just my day job. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think knowing that, gives me more ease when I suddenly realize, huh, I'm not, I'm not feeling the juice the way I normally do. Uh, you know, to be honest, what, what is perhaps more important for me is my reading life mm. and where I see the greater demand isn't, oh, well, I'd be able to write some fiction this afternoon. I've got a two hour blank, blank meeting. Yeah, I, I'll bet I can. I'll bet I can be in a zoom call and nod and just be writing fiction the entire time. And I've been doing this for years It will be public knowledge, right? So I have no problem with that. It's more that uh, it's Thursday, seven o'clock. There's nothing really to be done. There's no university event. The kids are all kind of okay. Dinner's done. The house isn't a mess. Why don't I read Bleak House? It's just sitting there. I should read Bleak House. I have nothing to <laughs> review right now. I want to read Bleak House. Oh, but hang on. I should check my inbox. Mm -hmm. Oh, hang on. I should I should uh, refresh the New York Times. It's been 34 seconds, right? So technology and, um, and in professional life draw me away from reading. That bothers me more than the – because at this point, like, I can't be sitting there in a, a University of Toronto governance meeting reading – Bleak House. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a passive-aggressive statement. Sure, a big one. Yeah, right. That's but, a flex. That's a real right, flex. Yeah. But that, like, that, that's a flex that that that's that strikes me as a little too much. Whereas, you know, right now, listeners, I'm I'm pretending to type, typing uh -huh. away while nodding. People just think I'm diligent or something, right? So, really, it's the reading life, which is so important to writing life, as you know. That's where I see the the challenge. And you said that, that that has come with a cer certain sense of maturity. Mm -hmm. Were there times, you know, a decade or two ago where you struggled against that more or you did feel more like 
screw this. I'm, you know, taking a week off and I'm not answering email or, or just mm. the resentment yeah. built. Uh, two things, actually, I would say to that. Uh, resentment is more my, my marital life. Uh, and I'll explain <laughs> what I mean by that. Uh, I think probably in the, in the, my first novel came out in 2006. The next one, Beggars, I was governor of the Northern Province. Beggars mm -hmm. Feast came out in 2011. In the time between 2006 and 2011, we had three children. My wife finished her PhD, and I was an assistant professor at Ben Ryerson. And I, at that point, did not want to give up on my writing life. I didn't, like, I didn't want it to lose momentum, if that makes sense. Right, right. Okay? And I can remember... Uh, several times, small children, Anna's just finishing her PhD. I've got to go to work. Um, and I'm a, you know, I'm an assistant professor. I don't have the same kind of control over my, my life the way I do, let's say as a vice provost. And I would, I kid you not, I would sneak downstairs into the basement and I would write fiction and not tell Anna because I would be doing that instead of either helping with the kids or creating some time for her to go work on her doctorate. Mm -hmm. It was a real thing. It was a real problem at times between us. And it was almost like fiction was my version of having an affair. You know, what were you mm -hmm. doing? Nothing. Were you with my novel, right? You, really cover, you cover up the screen really yeah, quickly. Yeah, like, yeah, no, exactly. no, no, there's no dialogue. Is that dialogue? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so that was absolutely um a problem because there was it, and you write about this in your fiction right like urban professional family life and all the kind of all the demands hitting you in all these different ways and then you kind of just you hit back in so many different ways you get frustrated with your with your professional life you get frustrated with the book because it's pulling you away you get frustrated with family life like all of that stuff strikes me as uh, happening all at once um but then, you know, we had some pretty plain spoken conversations about it. And, and, and now it's, now it, it's, it's a joke, but also it, it makes sense. Right. In other words, we have a more open marriage when it comes to my <laughs> spending time with literary characters. Um, you know, in, in terms of frustration, otherwise, the only thing I can think of very specifically, because it's so, so sharp in my mind was fall 2020. Okay. So we're, six or eight months into the pandemic. At that point, I was the vice dean undergraduate in the Faculty of Arts and Science at U of T, which meant I was responsible for ensuring what we call academic continuity for our 30,000 undergraduate students in their 50 departments and our, you know, whatever, 1,500 professors. And I needn't tell you or anyone listening that that was not an easy or straightforward task. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had sitting there you know, in my inbox, or actually no hard copy, my apologies, um, edits from John Metcalf on my most recent novel, Dante's Indiana. And what was fascinating to me was I could always find time, right? I don't need a lot of sleep. I can do this. I can do that, whatever. I could find the time, but Nathan, I couldn't find the, the creative space inside. It mm. was so full up with the the demands of, oh, oh the government just said we're shutting down anything that isn't a lab. How do we define a lab? Emergency meeting, emergency meeting, emergency meeting, whatever. Um, I couldn't do it. And so for the first time, I 
was genuinely convinced I was going to miss a submission deadline for a novel I was publishing. This has never happened before. And deadlines are artificial. That's not the issue. It's more just, I didn't have it in me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I said to my boss, this is what's happened. And, and this is the, the Dean of Arts and Science, Melanie Wooden here at U of T. And she said, take two months off. And like, meaning I'm still teaching, but take two months off from trying to figure out this, these pandemic matters for undergraduate students. And so I took January and February off and just spent all day every day getting back into things. And then anyway, and the novel came out later that fall. But that stands out as the one time where I really found myself resenting uh, not the time involved with the job. That's the, for me, at least, that's wrong. It's never a question of time. It's a question, I, I mean, I can always find time. For me, it's always a question of what's, how's that time being filled where everybody thinks I'm paying attention to this meeting. Actually, I am paying attention to these meetings. Terrible, mm -hmm. right? Like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that was uh, that was the moment where I really noticed it. I have three thoughts about what you just told me. That story. First of all, John Metcalf uses email. This no, is he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> I was going to say you. Yeah, yeah. You mean no, you I mean inbox as in your mailbox? It was in, uh... yeah, an actual <laughs> inbox, listeners. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's I got to clear that up because anyone listening to me like that's, okay, no, no, that sounds no, no. wrong. I got to say one thing on this though. Um, and probably John does listen to podcasts. So I'll be able to get away with this <laughs> years ago uh, when his book, I think it's called the museum at the end of the world. I think that's what it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, came out. This would have been 2017. Maybe I came across a very generous review of it in TLS Times Literary Supplement, which for someone who's, you know, uh, for anybody who's a serious writer, that matters. But for a, an, an Englishman, right, that, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I called John excitedly to say, hey, I just read this great review of your new book in uh, the TLS. And he said, oh, can you email me a link? <laughs> and I said, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Hit, it was, me up on, actually, hit me up on WhatsApp. Yeah, exactly. Now, he didn't have, I don't think he actually has an email address, um, but, his, but his wife Myrna does. So I sent her a link to it. Um, but it was one of those moments where I thought, okay, even John Metcalf has his limits, right? TLS versus um, being a kind of proud Luddite. Nope, you know who yeah. wins there. Yeah. <laughs> the second thought I had about that idea of, of your being given that time is, it also strikes me as like, obviously you would be like, oh, that's I'm very grateful for that. But then there's a there's a point where it's it's a little about like the way I think about parenting in, in the same way of like, do I sacrifice this thing that I want to do because I need to give this time to children? But if I sacrifice the thing, I'm unhappy mm -hmm. and I'm frustrated and then I'm going to be unhappy and frustrated with my children. Right. Isn't it better that I do the thing that makes me happy and less frustrated and then my children have me less frustrated and happy? In your case, part of what makes you valuable to that institution is that you are creating, you are writing, you are that mm -hmm. person who makes those books. So it makes practical sense. It's not just a you know, generous offer, go take some time off to yes. write the books. It's also like well, that's why you're here to some extent. Right. I mean, you yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have the credentials, but you also are here because you you write these books, and the of university course. wants me to write these books. And yes. then I, I agree completely. And I also think 
Um, the other reason why it was important for me to be able to be granted that time was it, I think, rightly resized my sense of self-importance. No, no. How could things go on if I'm not in all these teams meetings, <laughs> yeah. planning for online learning? You know, yeah. um, any any professional had any had had some in a leadership position, especially had some version of I am indispensable at some point during the pandemic. And you know what? Actually, no, it's okay. Everything's fine. I have no clue what we were even doing when I was away, and it worked out fine. So yes, there was the the sense that the university wants me to be doing those things, but also. The university doesn't irreducibly need Randy to yeah. figure out, you know, lab spacing for low enrollment fourth year molecular genetics courses or whatever it was. Right. It's going to be OK. And it was. And were you able to uh, separate yourself mentally or did you catch yourself like, you know, sending emails like, hey, uh, how's it going? No, no, you know there? what? I did. I did pretty well. But on the far end of it, when I when I returned, I felt very self-conscious about having lost the rhythm of things. I wasn't in all these meetings with the same people and this ongoing conversation, but whatever, it, you know, it, everybody got over it and we kept on going. So the third thought I had and the third question that comes out of that story is because you were given that time to complete those edits and get the book in on time and not miss your deadline. Mm -hmm. That allowed, as you say, the book to come out later that year, at the end of that year. Looking back in terms of COVID timing and what COVID mm -hmm. did to the publication of books, mm -hmm. do you ever wonder, maybe I should have just delayed yeah. that and done the edits yeah. in the summer so then it would come out in, you know, a year later or eight months later or something? So Dan, uh, Dan Wells, the publisher of Biblioasis, yes. uh, which published Dante's Indiana, was very much of that mind he was he was pointing out how hard going it was even by normal standards to to find a good hearing for for any literary fiction book at that point never mind public events etc and i would say certainly relative to original print the the reception was uh was certainly smaller and i would i would put that largely to the fact that there just wasn't a whole lot going on in terms of uh, in terms of public life right so i i see that absolutely as as a challenge that i uh that i had and it came out of frankly i think maybe two things um one was i just wanted it at some level you can spend forever on edits that's not me and i needed that book to be published in order to get on to what I wanted to work on next. Right. Mm -hmm. Not that that was so specific, but I'm just saying. Um, the second thing I would say is that I had, and this is very old fashioned. I had this idea of the book coming out in fall 2021, because that was the 700th anniversary of Dante's death and the completion of the divine comedy. And in my head, I thought, like, watch what's going to happen, right? Yes. Front page news. CFTO yeah. is going to want to run a story about this one. <laughs> we were all so focused on Dante at that time. It exactly. Miss. It was it could Dante not all miss. the time. Right? Yeah. We'll be in the Prime Minister's <laughs> Daily Press Conference. You know, it's the 700th anniversary of the Divine Comedy, and we've got this new novel coming. So I, I, 
I had in my head some sense that that was going to be uh, in marketing and communication terms, a great hook for the novel. And, you know, certainly the, the virtual talks I did, a lot of them involved marking the 700th anniversary, but I think I was probably forcing it a bit much in retrospect. Well, now we see the downside of the, the, the idea that intellectual is the second word in your Wikipedia. Yeah, like only, exactly. only an intellectual would have that approach to marketing. Yeah. It's the 7th anniversary of the Divine Comedy. It's going to kill. Why? <laughs> I remember writing a note to uh, my then editor at ECW uh, when I was working on a, a previous book. And I had, I was so excited because I was like, you know, if you need to talk to anybody about this book in progress, describe it as a Kingsley Amos novel as written by Alice Munro. And I thought like, <laughs> I've got it. That's the thing. Yeah. And there was like a respectful <laughs> silence from my editor until he finally said, yeah, I don't think that's going to get anybody yeah. very excited. And of course I was like, yeah, of course nobody's going to be excited about that. Like five people in the world will be excited about that. And I'm one of them. Yeah, exactly. I actually want to ask uh, in terms of these last two books, mm. uh, original print and Dante's Indiana, which you've said are part of a planned trilogy and you, you can mm -hmm. sense the question that's going to come soon, but that's not the question I have yet. You had said something in an interview about when you were writing or when you were putting together original print at some point in the conception of it, that you were reckoning with the, what you call the limitations of the performance-based approach to writing mm -hmm. literary fiction. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just want to ask you about that. What what you were think what that means uh, that term means to you, and and what was the reckoning you came to? Um, I think there's a couple of ways to think about that. Beggar's Feast, which was the novel before that one, uh, set in Sri Lanka, 100 years in the life of a man, three different continents, 14 children. It was it was my South Asian family saga novel. Mm -hmm. And it was sold internationally, published all over the place. I went to literary festivals all over the place, nominations, all the usual stuff for that kind of a book. And in retrospect, except for a few moments that I, could, I can point to very specifically if I had to think about it, it felt a little bit like a performance novel. Here's a big, important, dazzling, provocative, difficult South Asian fiction in the mm -hmm. vein of A and B and C. Yeah. And and the book had a professional life in publishing terms, more successful than its predecessor or the print novels that have followed. But readers never really speak to me about that novel. You know? Right, right. Whereas the, and, and my editor at that point, uh, Nicole Wynn Stanley, then at what was then Penguin, now part of a you know, Penguin Random House, said um you know you we know you're well read we, we know how smart you are but you randy you're not really in your novels you're just sort of performing something and it was working for the publishing world right as a professional thing um at that point i took a departure and i wrote a biography i wrote the biography of father richard john newhouse yes. pembroke ontario born new york neoconservative intellectual and catholic priest and having spent you know years immersed in someone else's life, I think there must have been some kind of um, compensation move in terms of a, a desire to kind of draw a little more self-confidently and openly on my own life 
you know, as a family man, as a person of faith, as someone with a, a an eccentric uh, extended family, as an academic, and and Prin, I think Prin came out of that. I don't know about you, but um, certainly the the seventeen versions of a first novel I've written uh, were all variations on bad autobiography. Sure. And yes. and I and I kind of I held that off in my first novel. I held it off for my second novel, and then maybe I was in a sense mature enough again to use an earlier term that by original print um, I could write the book I wanted to write. Now this is the interesting thing about uh, moving away from performance. It also means that I moved from the multinationals to an independent publisher because I remember having a conversation with Nicole at that point and. We were chatting with the book. I was also chatting with my agent about the book. And in both cases, and more, more so the agent, I would say, uh, what's, you know, that book, something with tractors, Ukrainian writer, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I know exactly. And I'm blanking on the they, Marina think, something or other, yes. but with tractors. Yeah. Anyway, and I think there were, I think there were a couple of books that all had followed that yes, pattern, that yes. title. You pattern. see where I'm going yeah. with this. Yeah. And those were, uh, professionally in the publishing world, very, very successful. And I remember my agent at the time saying, you know, could this zany, funny, ethnic fiction be kind of something like that? But that would have involved probably some decisions about some of the darker parts of the trilogy of the of original print. And also it's it's kind of explicit religious interests, right? Mm -hmm. That that doesn't play the same way. And so I had this, I frankly, I had a kind of moment where I thought, okay, uh, there's an interest in this book going this direction from, from a publishing professional vantage, but that's not what I want to do. I don't want to perform zany ethnic guy, right? Mm -hmm. With the funny fiction there's, or I acknowledge that's certainly part of, of the persona involved with these books, but that's not all there is to it. Um, we were probably at a point in our financial life where I didn't need the same kind of advance as a, a multinational would offer versus an indie. And I also felt like I was probably established enough as an early mid-career writer that I could I could go somewhere else. And then finally, this is the most important thing, um, when I did show the Biblio Oasis, John Metcalf got it right away. Like He saw what I was trying to do. He had, uh, if not zero interest, almost kind of anti-interest in marketing and in a professional book, right, a right. publishing industry book. And so it worked. And that's, I think that's how I moved away from, um, from a book that, like, I, I love Beggar's Beast. I'm very invested in it, but it's public life was much more professional, multinational. And that made sense for that book. And I did that. And that's great. But I'm not someone, as you can probably tell from the work of my career, who just wants to repeat, 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 repeat. So I'm looking at the print novels now. This won't be where I where things end. I'll be doing something else after this, right? I already am. So and that's how I would approach this. That's interesting. And I would almost reframe that in my mind as you know, it's a move away from which many writers have done, move away from this sense of capital I important books, yes. making your novels important. Or even, and I don't mean this in any dismissive way, and in, in fact, it's a compliment, this urge to be major, mm. this aching to be to write major novels. Yeah, yeah. This is whereas the novel. You're, the novel, yes. We're in fact, I don't know, I, I, I get a sense from your your tastes, and it's certainly mine, that 
it's usually the minor books that are the ones we feel most connected to. Yeah. The books that aren't trying to take on, again, those large well, public. Yeah, like in the UK, they call state of the nation books, right? Yes. Uh, or France. What, what used to be called Gillerbait in, <laughs> yeah, in Canada, but yeah. uh, the Giller has has become a lot more unpredictable and sophisticated yes. and less about like, well, this is the big book of the year. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, listeners, that was Nathan and Randy both suddenly getting worried that we were being negative <laughs> towards the Giller price, just in case anyone was wondering. Well, I can yeah. offer oh, that I... very quick qualification, and I'm I'm agreeing vigorously. Yes, um, but you know what what I wanted what I wanted to say though on that that same point is um, think about someone like Evelyn Waugh or someone like John Updike or even Amos. Right? These are people who published you know dozens of books, and there wasn't some sense of this this tortured out of the raw stuff of life comes this gleaming finished thing every 10 years. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is Ann Michaels, right? Right. And so I think for, for anyone listening to this who might think to themselves about what it means to be a writer, I think one of the discernments is, well, what's the model that makes sense? And the idea that, you know, you can publish several books. Um, you're not, you're not kind of fingernails sort of deep, you know, like, like, like holding onto the wheel. Like this is it. If this one doesn't work, that's it. You know, that that's that strikes me as an unnecessary level of um, expectation to put both on the book uh, and on yourself. And I'll just say, actually, the best advice I've had about this one came from Larry Hill. I remember after uh, after Beggish Beast was not nominated for the Giller Prize, after my first one was. At that point, um, I was I was despondent in some I was having coffee with Larry. We're going to do an event together. And very thoughtfully and generously, he said, you know, I am so happy about the success of the Book of Negroes. And I'm really happy it happened at this point in my career instead of much earlier, because it would have prevented me from doing so many other things, mm, right? It would have distorted yeah. things. You know, the other example, and I'll give, I'll give um, two models. Years ago, I don't know, probably early 90s, grade 12, probably so 92, 93, something like this. I went to a Neil Young Pearl Jam concert at Exhibition Stadium. And I remember watching Neil Young in his set get up after playing a song and walk around the semicircle of the stage, which had a series of different guitars, acoustic, electric, lap, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. and scratching his head, trying (laughs) to decide what he felt like doing next. And that really appealed to me that sense, right? Like I can do any of these things. What do I feel like doing next? Rather than, oh, it's Neil Young. I've got to just play acoustic. I've just got to do, keep on rocking the feet, whatever it was. The freedom that comes with that level of capacity. (laughs) Um, Arundhati Roy versus Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie, uh, whose work I've taught, who I know personally, uh, whose work I've certainly defended in public and uh, written about in lots of different ways. He's the big novel guy, right? Like, if you think about it, um, it's rare to find a Rushdie novel that does not have, other than his, his books for young people, that does not have a kind of state-of-the-world vibe to it. Yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna pull it all in, everything. Yeah, what what exactly. are the 12 this things we're all talking boom. about? Yeah. yeah. Whereas, Arundhati Roy publishes The Goddess of Small Things, uh, it wins the Booker. It, it makes her into this international literary celebrity. 
And then she goes off into the woods to hang out with Marxist rebels in remote India. And then she writes about about the nuclear, uh, the nu- writes an anti-nuclear movement book in India. Like, then you see what I'm saying? In other words, yeah, yeah. She went elsewhere. Now, I, by no means do I have the same sense of things as Aaron Daddy Roy, but her approach, I think, I find more appealing. And so right now, I'm in, you know, I've written two out of three books of a trilogy, which I'll finish at some point. Um, but again, imaginatively, I'm already looking elsewhere rather than, oh, there he is. He does those zany ethnic academic novels. Repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's it's something that comes up on this podcast a lot that that knowledge that down that pathway lies a much more, you know, uh, remunerative and publicly visible career. If you mm. would just kind of attach yourself to that brand, mm. to that shtick, to that thing. If I just was like, if I became that, if I went down that path, I know mm. what would happen. But you're heading on this other way, wherever wherever that leads. And maybe that does leave into, lead into the woods with some Marxist radicals. Right. Uh, but I do have to drill into that, what you just said, where whenever someone, whenever a writer declares they are working on a planned trilogy, mm. I always feel like there's an element of hubris in it mm-hmm. and which will eventually lead to a moment of like, oh my God, that means three. <laughs> I have to, <laughs> I have to actually make three. So yeah. where are you on the third? Is it in a, you know, without telling me like page count or something? Sure, sure. If you're oh, already, think... if your brain is already starting to move beyond the horizon of, of this trilogy, uh, how are you thinking of that third book now? I have written one hundred and thirty thousand words of new fiction that has nothing to do with print. <laughs> so things are going well. Things, things are going well <laughs> on a couple of different books. I am not right now. Um, actively writing the third novel in this trilogy. And that has two reasons for it. The first is that objectively, this is part of the problem when you're an English professor, you can analyze your own work in a different kind Mm -hmm. of way. But objectively, um, I think just going into a third veiny, God-filled adventure felt to me a little too pat, a little too obvious. And then as a writer, that's not really that interesting, you know? So I could have completed the trilogy quickly just for the sake of completing the trilogy. But that seems to me to be a disservice to uh, the kind of active living life interior to these books and to, you know, a lot of people, many more than I would have expected who are who are kind of always just kind of asking, well, how's that third book coming? Just not feeling it right now and and then meantime other things just became interesting to me imaginatively and i think that's good you know years ago i was interviewing david mitchell the, the british novelist uh, at the bluma pell salon and he had this really interesting analogy that i've since stolen and use all the time um uh, of writers as air traffic controllers and you've got these stories just Hmm. circling and circling in your head and then suddenly you know the clouds clear and it's a story about a guy struggling to keep his restaurant going it's that one 
I'm bringing that one in now, right? So for whatever reason, I certainly have ideas about the setting and the situation for the third print novel. But I think to try to start writing it now would be forced and premature and completely go against the idea of literary fiction. In other words, I could just create an installment model, but it's not, it's not what I'm thinking about. So for now, it's in, it's in imaginative, um, limbo is not right. Cause I'm still constantly thinking about it, but it's not, uh, it's not yet ready to, to land. It's interesting that you use that, that air traffic controller, uh, model. Are you ever concerned though, that you'd be bringing these other planes into the land first, if we're going to extend the metaphor and that you might go back and like, I think I want to check in on that third mm. novel, that third of the trilogy and realize it's disappeared from the radar or it's crashed in a field. Like, right. do you ever get concerned that it, it's it's literally going to run out of fuel at some point and that you will, you will lose it? Well, let me ask you that. Let me ask you that question in a different way. What if you found out that the third print novel is a short story that shows up in a magazine? Hmm. I, I, I absolutely. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it as a as a conceptual thing. Yeah. I, 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 part of what I'm thinking here is um, the idea of. Uh, I I have to be open to the idea that it might be ten years before mm. that that third book is ready to go. You know, um, I almost want Prin, the character who is, as you know, is a, it's a kind of autobiographical stand-in, to grow up, a, a, to, to age a little more, to have a different set of problems than late bourgeois middle-class life. Um, but I don't, I don't quite know yet. And I think you have to be okay with the idea that, you know, you might go back and it's not there. I know it's there enough for a short story. Hmm. And I'm very confident it's there enough for a novel. It's like, I know what it is, but it's just not ready to go yet in terms of uh, the desire to write. In other words, I'm not excited to write it yet. And when you become excited to write it, then that's different. Then you're suddenly in a situation where you, you, you can't help but start going. And there's nothing more um, exhilarating than that for a writer. I also just want to note that I caught your reference to a novel about a middle-aged guy opening Good. a restaurant. <laughs> Good. Just wanted to I make will, sure. I will say in the in the in the air traffic controller metaphor, that's like a small little Cessna with one engine on fire that's you know <laughs> careening towards the tarmac. But but it landed. You stopped the landing. It did land. It landed. But you know, and then ambulances had to be rushed out to <laughs> to take care of it. I also think that I wonder if if you were to push yourself to say like, well, just for the sake of efficiency or time or neatness, mm. I'm going to complete this third trilogy. That would almost push you in back into that sense of it becoming a performance base. Yeah, exactly. Literature, exactly. As opposed to what you're actually wanting to write and get within, get inside. I would agree completely. Um, and yeah. And then suddenly ironically, the conditions created by by trying to leave performance have created their own expectations, right? Whereas if you wait a little bit, uh, it might um, you might just change the the conditions. And also, and I won't I won't get any details here, but if I think about the elements that I want to bring together for this third book, um, 
probably we need to be in a different point in our public life for these to make more sense to people. Um, and again, I won't go into it, but I think that also is is something that's on my mind. You're saying that uh, there are issues in terms of faith and Christianity and religion that are, uh, you know, in flux right now? Uh, no, I, that I, I, haven't, I haven't noticed that. Uh, that intersect, let's say, with immigrant life and indigenous life. Oh, you I put see. all that okay. together as a satirist, and you got to find the right moment for it. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.